Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, I encourage you to do so using your favorite podcast software. Whether it's Stitcher, Google Play, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. I also encourage you to pick up your Famous Investigator t-shirt over at famous.greatdetectives.net. And order soon to ensure your shirt arrives by Christmas time. Now let's get into this week's episode of Philo Vance. The original air date, October the 24th of 1949. And the title is The Deathless Murder Case. Yes? Mr. Vance says that Mrs. Dorothy Wayne to see you. By appointment? No, she says she has no appointment, but it's urgent. Is Miss Deering out there? Yes. Do you want her? No, just tell her I want her to take some notes later and ask Mrs. Wayne to come in, please. Wayne, Wayne, where do I need you? Mr. Vance? Oh, Mrs. Wayne, please come right in. Thanks. It's nice of you to see me, Mr. Vance. I know you're the busiest private investigator in this city, and I have no appointment. I'm never busy when a client has urgent business, Mrs. Wayne. Won't you sit down? Thank you. Mr. Vance, how old do you think I am? I beg your pardon. I asked you how old you thought I might be. I'm sorry, Mrs. Wayne. The question is leading and the answer might be incriminating. (laughs) (laughs) I can't possibly be that old. (laughs) Oh, by the way, you uh, recognize my name. Wayne, I was trying to place it. I'm Edward J. Wayne's widow. Oh, yes, of course. Died last year, leaving well over a million dollars to you, didn't he? Yes. He was twice my age, but we were very much attached to each other. I don't doubt that you were, Mrs. Wayne. Now, please tell me just what is the urgency in your call. Vance, I'm 31 years old. Well, that's hardly the urgent age. (laughs) It isn't. (laughs) (laughs) The point of my coming here is that I want to stay 31. Well, the man who mixes the magic medicine is out, Mrs. Wayne. (laughs) I didn't expect you could help me on that score. But there's a man who says he can. A man who insists he can keep me 31 for as long as he likes. Really? Who is this wonder worker? His name is John Bell, and he wants $100,000 for his secret. Well, it would be well worth it if he could do what he claims. What gives you the idea that there's anything at all in what he says he can do? I have the best reason in the world, then. Yes? John Bell looks 40, but I have definite proof that he's over 400 years old. Thank <laughs> you.
Gee, this sure is a classy-looking joint. You like it, do you? I never saw anything like it outside a museum. Gee, where'd you get all that stuff, Johnny? Battle axes and those spears and everything. You buy them? Sam, I didn't invite you up here to my apartment to have you admire my taste in decorations. (laughs) Well, I was surprised you invited me up here at all. I just ran into you on the street. Boy, was I surprised to see you, of all people. I was a little amazed myself, Sam. Unfortunately, I wish the meeting could have been postponed a month or six weeks. I don't get it, Johnny. Then you always were a strange one. What difference does it make if I met you this morning or I met you a month from now? It matters a great deal to both of us. There are a hundred thousand reasons why I wish you hadn't made an appearance at this moment. There's just one reason why you should wish that. If there is a reason, I certainly don't know it, Johnny. Honest, I don't. Hey, Johnny, what are you doing with that gun? Johnny! Johnny, don't! Now you know the reason, Sam. A little late, but you know it. You know that because you came along just when you did. You had to die. Come on, get back, everybody. What do you think this is, a sideshow? Get back away from the body. Hey, Morrison. Yes, Sergeant. Get him back. All right, folks. Hey, Morrison, come here. Yes, Sergeant. You hear that siren? Yeah. Take a look at that car. Belongs in District Attorney Markham. See that he gets through this mob, will you? Oh, oh, never mind helping Markham. He's got his friend Philo Vance with him. Let Vance push his way in. Which is exactly what Vance is doing. Hello, Heath. Hi. Hello, D.A. Hello, Heath. Vance and I got down here as soon as we could. Who is the dead man? Who knows? All marks of identification have been removed. He was shot. Somebody tossed him face down in this empty lot, just like you see him. That's what I like about a murder. You get so much to work on. Since when was that a deterring factor to you, Vance? It never was. I think I can tell you this about the dead man, though. He was a laborer or a farmer. Worked out in the sun a great deal. Notice his neck, Markham. It's baked to dark red. Yes, I see that. He might conceivably have been a farmer. That outfit he's wearing is definitely a go-to-city suit. And unless somebody dressed him after he was killed, I think you'll find he's from a small town. Yes. Well, I've got to be going. You going to work on this murder, Vance? No, Sergeant Heath. Not at the moment. I have a client who'd like me to see a man named John Bell. You know all I know about this murder case. It's not much, believe me, but it's more than I know about a man who claims to be... 400 years old. Please sit down, Mr. Vance. Thank you. Of course you realize I know all about you. In that case, of course, Mr. Bell, you know that I don't believe you are 400 years old. How could you possibly know I am not? Logic, laws of longevity, the complete impossibility of your being that old. How could you convince me that you are? Oh, I won't attempt to. I think you'll do that little thing for yourself. Vance, did you ever see a room like this before? Not quite like this. Those antiques are beautiful. Your library is complete. Thank you. Furniture and decorations are authentic. That much I, I can tell you. And you're right. Everything is authentic. I can attest to that because I didn't purchase these things at stores, Vance. I've kept them all these years. 
Oh, what years? I was born in 1545. You don't look it, do I? No, you don't look a day over 350. <laughs> nice sense of humor, old man. Thank you. Bell, do you mind if I ask you something? Well, please do. You were born in 1545. What happened in 1588? A lot of things. One of them was Drake defeating the Spanish Armada. Quite a battle it was, too. Eh, we didn't think we had a chance. We? Yes, I fought with Sir Francis. That was before I came to this country in 1607. Hmm. I'm getting to sound silly, even to myself, but uh, what did you do here in that year? My friend John Smith sent for me. Captain John Smith. He was in Jamestown, Virginia at the time. Quite a man, John was. You knew him very well, of course. Of course. There was quite a thing between him and Pocahontas, you may remember. I remember reading about it, which is probably what you did, too. <laughs> Stay skeptical, Van. Please do. And uh, don't allow me to try to convince you. I promised you you'd convince yourself. Yes, I know. Uh, Bell, uh, what happened to Pocahontas? Married a fellow named John Rolfe. Most picturesque wedding ceremony I ever saw. You should have been there, then. No doubt. Bell, what is your secret of prolonging life indefinitely? I sell that secret, Vance. I'm doing nothing against the laws of this country, merely violating the laws of nature. I've selected five women who are willing to pay $100,000 each not to grow old. I guarantee each of them thinks she's getting a good bargain, too. Have you any proof that you're as old as you claim? Why should I need proof, Vance? I don't have to convince you. I've told you that. The Marquis used to say that only the individuals involved are entitled to all the details of an explanation. <laughs> you are not involved in this, Vance. You have to prove I am not 400 years old. I don't have to prove that I am. That's true enough. And the Marquis, whom you quoted, had a point in his favor, too. By the way, who was he? Lafayette. I fought with him in the Revolutionary War. Admirable character, Vance. You fought with Drake in 1588 and Lafayette in 1776? In the War of 1812, too, but uh, isn't this all beside the point? Believe me, I can prove, if I have to, that I am as old as I claim. But I'd rather you investigated me. It would be so much more convincing to you if you find out for yourself. Hey, Tony. Tony, where are you? In here, Pete. Shaven. Come on in. Tony, I find out what that guy John Bell is up to. I know his whole racket. Boy, am I smart, huh? Oh, but you know it's more correct than that last thing you said. Now, listen. You know the guy is working some kind of racket, so you send me to spy on him. I spy on him. The dame comes to see him, I follow her. She goes to Philo Vance's place, I follow her. When she leaves, she goes home. How's that, huh, Tony? Great. Takes first place under the heading, so what? Oh, now, wait, wait a minute. I crawled into John Bell's apartment when Vance comes to see him, understand? I find out the whole gimmick. This Bell claims he is 400 years old, and he's selling the secret of how to live that long to this rich dame, you understand? Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Hmm, not a bad idea. Of course, it has to be done pretty delicately. But it isn't a bad idea at all. That ain't all, Tony. Really? Look I am in this John Bell's place earlier when I see him knock a guy off. Shoots him. I know who the guy is, and Bell says something about being sorry, 
that the guy meets him in the street this morning. I see that, too. Uh, what do you know? Give me the pound of beef. Yeah, sure, sure. Hey, Tony. Well, uh, how about it? Am I smart, huh? You're a genius. <laughs> hmm. Well, what do you see in the mirror, Tony? My face, stupid. Oh. Notice I'm getting a couple of lines around my eyes. You must be getting old, huh? Well, we all got to get old, you know. Not according to John Dell. Maybe I better see him. I got an idea I can cut into that easy dough he's going to grab. Yep, Pete. Bell's either going to cut me in, or I'm going to cut him out. Hello, Vance speaking. Hello, Vance. This is Markham. Oh, yes? Have you got a man you thought might be a farmer? No, Markham. To tell you the truth, I haven't. I've been uh, working on another case. The most puzzling and intriguing circumstance I've ever encountered. I'm almost convinced I know a man 400 years old. Oh, Vance. I know how silly it sounds. It and certainly I said does. I, I said I was almost convinced, remember. That much is in my favor. <laughs> well, let me know how you make out. Oh, uh, I called to tell you we checked the clothes the murdered man was wearing. They were mail-order stuff, just as you thought. We're making a little progress on the case, but I wish you were working on it. I will be if you haven't solved it before I wind up this ridiculous situation I'm in. I'm beginning to dislike myself for not finding the fallacy in the claims of this man, John Bell. But I have an ace in the hole. What's that? My old history professor at college, Markham. He knows every date and practically every character who ever breathed between the Stone Age and now. My client, Mrs. Dorothy Wayne, and I are going to see him this afternoon. I hope he tells you something you can use. He'd better. Then, after I explode this John Bell individual... Maybe I can get your killer for you. I hope to have your murderer at the end of a rope before I get to the end of mine. This is District Attorney Markham. The murder case the police were on has a relative unimportance to Philo Vance because he is faced with a man who insists he's 400 years old. This individual, John Bell, is trying to sell his secret to one of Vance's clients. And up until now, Vance has found no way of disputing the man's claim. The secret of John Bell, however, has remained protected despite Vance's efforts so far. And who he is, what he is, how old he actually is, are unknown to anybody. Vance and his client are at Vance's old university. This college was your alma mater, Vance? They're not bragging about it, Mrs. Wayne, but was. <laughs> oh, I did an awful lot of studying in this room. It contains practically every reference book on ancient history ever published. When do you think we'll be able to see your ex-professor? I made an appointment for three o'clock. Five after now. Oh. He'll be here. He's pretty old. Takes him a little time to get around. Vance. When you saw John Bell yesterday, wasn't there some way you could have tricked him? Believe me, Mrs. Wayne, I tried. He told me, for instance, that he attended the first performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet at the Globe Theatre in London. Is that where it was given? Yes. Just to test him, I asked him who played the leading female role in Romeo and Juliet, the first performance of which he also claimed to have seen. And uh, did he know the lady's name? No, but he knew there were no ladies in the theater in those days. The females frowned on the stage until the following century. Oh. Mrs. Wayne, that man is... My apologies for being late. My sincere apologies for being late. No, don't get up, Vance. Of course I remember you. Now you sit still. And uh, this lady is... Professor uh... Claiborne, this is Mrs. Dorothy Wayne. Very pretty. Very pretty indeed. 
You've been well, then? You look well. I'm glad to see you, and glad to see that you remember your old university. <clears throat> now, then, you must want something, or you wouldn't be here. Now, what is it? Speak up, speak up, young man. Well, Professor, in this library, there must be a book containing little-known facts about English history in the late 1500s and American history in the early 1600s. Yes? What book would I look at? What book? Well, any of several. Henderson's Early British Empire, Jackman's Elizabethan Era, Stone's Early American History, all accepted, authentic, factual, complete with names and dates. Where are you going? Just over to the shelf. I want to see the Jackson book. Oh. Elizabethan era, you say. That's right. Shelf A, fifth volume in. Three volumes in the set, printed in 1661. And how are you, Mrs. Wayne? Oh, Professor Claiborne, you can be a big help to us, I'm sure. Well, that's what I'm here for. You find what you're looking for, Van? I have the volume right here. Good. If we're lucky, I'll find what I'm looking for. Here, here. Put the book down on this table. It's too heavy to be carrying around. Uh, what are you looking for? The names of the men who served with Drake when he sailed against the Armada. Well, try uh, page 157 with footnotes. Thank that you. ought to give it to you. Ought to be a drawing of the deck of Drake's ship, too, with some of the crew members shown. Thanks. Professor, you have a wonderful memory. Well, a man has to have something good with me at the memory. You find what you want, Dan? Yes, here's a list of the entire crew that served with Sir Francis Drake. But I don't see... Oh, brother. What yeah. is it, Find something? What is it? Take a look for yourself. Ninth name down mm -hmm. in charge of quarterdeck. Yes? Distinguished bravery during the encounter, Seaman John Bell. Bell. That's not all. Look at this drawing. Yes? The man in the striped shirt standing next to Drake. Well? Recognize him, Mrs. Wayne? Why? Why, it's John Bell. Wait a minute. Yes? John Bell? Yes. And Tony Falletti, I gotta talk to you. Step back. Hey, wait, wait, what's the... Wait a minute, what... What's the meaning... That's mean? a good boy. What's the meaning of this? Don't be in such a hurry to find out. Hmm, nice place you've got here. What's that? Suit of armor? What else could it possibly be? You got something here, fellow boy. How about this battle axe on the wall? Where'd you get it? Are you going to tell me what you want here? Sure. Let's see. I'll start from the beginning. You knocked off a guy named Sammy Mead, a farmer from the Midwest. Go on. Let me tell you how I know so you won't think I'm black. A friend of mine saw you meet the Sammy Mead on the street the other morning and heard you make an appointment with him for up here later that day. Well? So when you leave, Sammy, he talks to Finds out who he is and where he's from. Then I send him back to check on you some more. And he does. He sees you killed, Sammy. And he finds out what kind of a swindle you're swimming. Now I'm here to cut myself in. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. You were, you were admiring this battle axe a moment ago. Let me show it. Don't try to get coy, Bell. Oh, I won't. I want to show you why I can get away with what I'm doing. You, uh, you elected yourself my pop. You're entitled to know what's going on. That makes sense. Uh, only I got a little friend in my pocket that's going to keep his eye on you. An automatic thing. You'll never get it out of your pocket. Oh, no. One sock doesn't. That's all. Two. A little tougher than you think, Bell. I'm getting up. This time you're going down. Oh, no. You see, I have a friend, too. This battle axe. <laughs> 
Now, look, Vance, there's been a second murder, and we aren't close to the solution of the first yet. I know, Markham. And in that situation, you have company. I'm not even close to a reasonable explanation of John Bell, either. But tell me about this second murder. Well, the victim, we know. His name was Tony something or other. He had a dozen aliases. Last one he used was Folletti. We found him in another vacant lot way out in the suburbs, and he was killed by an axe. Only the coroner says it wasn't an ordinary axe. Oh, what kind was it? We don't have the murder weapon, of course, but according to my information, it was a very unusual sort of axe. Quite long, we believe, with a curved blade. I see. The axe that was actually used is probably at the bottom of the ocean by now. But, Markham, there is just the possibility that the case you're working on and mine are alive. Really? How do we find out? You mean, how do we find your murderer? Yes, of course. We advertise for him. <laughs> Stop joking, man. I'm not. Not at all. You're not? Of course, the murderer won't answer my ad, but somebody who might lead me to him will. There are awful lot more men out here in the office, Mr. Vance, waving copies of your ad in the newspaper. How many are you going to see? I've interviewed nine already without any result. Well, send the next one in, please. Yes, sir. Okay, Mr. Vance will take you now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sit down, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. I understand you're here because you sell antiques and you have a collection of early English armor and weapons. Yes, sir. Thank you. Your ad says you were interested in some. Believe me, sir, mine are the best in town. Well, first, I want to know if you sold something in the last day or so. I sold a lot of things. I mean a battle axe. A two-headed battle axe with a curved blade about seven inches long and a carved handle. Yes, I did. I, I sold one this morning. Genuine antique it was, too. Sold it to a man named... Let me see now. You've got he... to remember who it was. Well, come to think of it, he didn't give me a name. Mm. Tall man, slim, black mustache, very distinguished looking. Oh, thank you very much. That's him. That's the one. Thank you very much. You may not have known his name, but you told me who he was just the same. <laughs> Well, Vance, it's nice to have you back here. Thank you. I understand your client, Mrs. Wayne, instructed you to either prove I was phony by tonight, or she was willing to accept my offer to preserve her age at 31 forever. Yes, that's so, Bill. Say, isn't that a different battle axe on that wall over there? Different? How do you mean, different? It isn't the same one that was on the wall the last time I was here. You're mistaken, Vance. Am I? Yes. I think not. It'll be pretty easy to tell. When I was here before, I left a little scratch on the handle with my thumbnail. Mind if I look at that one on the wall? Not at all. I'll get it for you. You know, Vance, I rather liked your being called in by Mrs. Wayne. I want no better testimonial to my authenticity to influence my other prospects than your verification. Here's the axe. Thank you. Now, I left a little scratch just above. There it is, all right. Of course it is. If you left it there, it's still there. That's the point, Mr. Bell. I left no scratch on the axe. You just duplicated with your fingernail a scratch you thought I made because you knew this was not the same axe. You're very clever, Vance. I didn't think so up till now. You used the other axe to kill Tony Folletti. Why? Because he knew you were a phony the same as I do, and I can prove it the same way that he could. His friend came to see you too, eh, Vance? Well, what you know won't do you a bit of good. Because I'm going... Oh, no, you're not. Well, that settles you, Mr. Bell. All 400 years of you. 
This better be good, Vance. This is the one explanation I haven't any clue to. Markham, listen. Suppose you were browsing through an old history book and came upon a picture of a man in the 16th century that looked like you. What would you do? <laughs> Nothing except pity the poor fellow. <laughs> Seriously. You'd just notice the coincidence, be interested for a while, and then forget it. But not the man we knew as John Bell. He saw the old print in the history book, saw the man standing next to Sir Francis Drake on Drake's flagship, and knew he was the image of that man. How about the name, John Bell? He did some research. He found, as I did later, that there was a man named John Bell who served with Drake. He was very thorough, though. He got all the names of the men who fought with the English commander and then went through the Revolutionary War record. Until he found a duplicate name. Right. He found the name John Bell in both places. Now, that's not too coincidental, Markham. It's a very ordinary name. It was even more ordinary in those days. And now Bell was almost ready for his great fraud. He must have spent months studying every detail of early English in American history. Probably, but he had excellent incentive. A half million dollars that he knew five women would gladly pay him if he could show them how to live to be 400. The beautiful part of his racket, of course, was that as soon as he collected, he'd vanish. And there'd be no finding him when one of his victims noticed herself going older. It was a very well-thought-out stunt, believe me. Bell's first bad break was meeting Sammy Mead, his first murder victim, Markham. The one whose body you found in the vacant lot. Why did he kill Sammy Mead? Simple. Mead knew John Bell back when. Knew where he came from, how old he was, and everything else. Oh. Bell had to kill him. But in killing Meade, Bell got Tony Folletti on his trail. And Tony's friend Pete, whom you found after Tony's death. Whom I found and who taught. But remember, Markham, that that was after I reasoned out that if Bell had used a battle axe from his wall to kill Folletti, he'd buy another one immediately so that he could dispose of the murder weapon which might possibly incriminate him. Well, you broke the case all right, Vance. Then I knew you would, you know. Thanks. There was a time during the case when I wished I knew it. Well, Markham, let's close up shop. It's the end of the day, you know. The end of the day and the end of the deathless murder case. Welcome back. Uh, this is one of the few episodes where I was actively annoyed by Philo Vance's investigative methods. Usually, Vance is the smartest person in the case, and he acts pretty reasonably. But in this episode, Vance's method is just kind of baffling. 
Because all he was going to find in the first part of the investigation is all of the uh, clothes that Bell had used. The only way that that particular line of inquiry would yield any results is if he had made an obvious error. Certainly possible, but a more fruitful line of inquiry would be to find out who the guy really is. And since he's cooperating with the investigation, or, you know, is fully aware of it, then, you know, Vance could take things like fingerprints. And a lot of people had fingerprints on file because they did war work, which, you know, you don't have to be a super patriot to do. There were a lot of people who did war work because it paid really, really well. In addition, if you were going to research it, uh, particularly when it comes to the person he claimed to have been who fought in an American war, even back in 1949, there were people who would be able to, you know, go and check you hire another investigator in another city to or hire some sort of service to look into that. That may not be as entertaining to listen to, but it would be a whole lot more logical than the silly thing we got from Vans in this episode. I got particularly annoyed when he went to his college professor and asked him if he knew if there was a book he could look into. That's not a question for a college professor. That's a question for a librarian. Though the murderer wasn't very bright either. I think his first killing was pretty unnecessary. Someone came to town from his hometown, recognized him, but had no idea what he was up to. Now certainly that could be a potential complication, but not as much as a murder. Well now we turn to listener comments and feedback. And uh... We have an email from Caleb who writes in, Hi Adam, I just listened to the teacup murder case, and I agree the murderer drank tea so he must be British was a pretty weak clue. Good thing they got a confession. Your comments on British people adopting American manners of speaking made me think about this article. And he links an article from the New York Post about the Pippa Pig effect during the height of the pandemic when kids were watching a lot more television, this British series, Peppa Pig, was hugely popular. And I imagine it still is. But as a result of that, a lot of kids are picking up British phrases. Or at least, uh, you know, some kids, you know, I think it's anecdotal rather than like, scientific. But parents are saying, you know, kids are starting to say Father Christmas instead of Santa Claus. And saying things like, give it a go. It's fascinating. I've not heard of Peppa. But any detective who tries to solve a case in the same way Vance did in the teacup uh, murder case may in fact find out that they have not actually identified someone who is really a British person pretending to be an American, but rather someone who watched Peppa Pig growing up. Caleb adds, as a father of small children, I can verify that certain words in our household have become anglicized. Forget which listeners uh, compared Barton Drake to Philo Vance in terms of the detective's lack of humility and or the stupidity of surrounding characters. I wonder which old-time radio detective 
has the highest opinion of himself. My first guess would be Nero Wolf, but sure, there's some very stiff competition. That's a good question, and I agree that there's not an easy answer. It's hard to quantify in a lot of ways. You might be tempted to say Poirot, because he has a very high estimation of his own skills. But actually, I think that if you look at Poirot, part of the entertainment uh, value and the way that he kind of clashes against the culture he lives in in the United Kingdom is that traditionally British uh, society and culture valued modesty. And he was living in that culture, but he did not really have that sort of frame of reference. So he had no problem boasting about himself being the greatest detective in the world. I think if you look at old-time radio, probably two literary examples will show the most indication of having a high opinion of themselves, and that would be Wolf and uh, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes, in particular, because of his use of scientific methods and of deduction in a way that was ahead of its time for the typical 19th century policeman can really come off as having a big sense of superiority. The book form of Philo Vance, as he started out, was really the most smug detective I've ever encountered in reading. I mean, there were others that had other types of faults, but Philo Vance in his first book was just absolutely insufferable. But that's toned down quite a bit in the radio version. It's kind of hard to tell if Vance has an exceptionally high opinion of himself, given the fact that Markham is almost around and practically worships the ground that Vance uh, walks on. So I don't think Vance thinks as much of himself as Markham does. But given Markham's sky-high opinion, it's hard to tell what Vance's opinion of himself might be. Caleb uh, concludes by saying, Thanks again for keeping the golden age of radio going strong. Hope you and the family are all well. Well, thanks so much, Caleb. I appreciate that. And now we turn over to YouTube. Regarding the brotherly murder case, um, Mark writes... Yet, no minor actor played the uh, minor hood. Edward G. Robinson sounds like. I can understand uh, where you're coming from on that, because there is some similarity in the voice, but it was not Edward G. Robinson. And there have been some people who have reached some interesting casting suggestions, but you're not going to hear a major Hollywood star of the era like Edward G. Robinson appearing in a minor radio role. It just would not be worth their time. If they're going to appear on radio, it's going to be in a credited major role. There may be a couple of actors you might hear doing something like that before they got a big break in television or movies. A good example of that is Jeff Chandler, who did a lot of porting radio work before he uh, really broke out big in pictures in Broken Arrow. I sort of before they were stars sort of thing, but 
And by 1949, Edward G. Robinson, definitely a, a name star working out in Hollywood, so would not appear in a file of Vance. Sasoff gets it right, saying the thug who dismantled Vance's, uh, I th think it means Markham's logic, was played by Ralph Bell, who always did a great job playing criminal roles. Later, in the mid-1970s, he became the most prolific actor in Hyman Brown's CBS Radio Mystery Theater. So yeah, his radio career lasted a good long time. Well, thanks so much, uh, Sasoff. And yeah, it was uh, Ralph Bell, who was probably one of the most recognizable voices in New York radio. There were so many uh, voices in Hollywood old-time radio that fans recognize. I, I think with New York, it's a lot harder because uh, they tended to credit actors a lot less, uh, I've observed, in New York-based radio series. And we also have less transcriptions from New York, I think it's safe to say. Bell was definitely a huge voice in New York radio, and one of the more recognizable ones, playing not only crooks, but also police officers. In addition to the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, you can also hear some of his work in Theater 5, which was ABC's uh, radio revival program that originated from New York. Now we have a comment from N who writes, I subscribed to this channel and went to the original podcast site over at greatdetectives.net. What a treasure trove. Thank you so much for doing this. I love listening to these stories when I'm out working in my garden. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening in and... Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Andrew, Patreon supporter since August of 2021. Currently supporting the program at the rookie level of $2 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, Andrew. And that will do it for today. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, I encourage you to do so with your favorite podcast software, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Pocket Cast, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please be sure to rate and review it wherever you download your podcast from. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode of Philo Vance, but join us back here tomorrow for yours truly, Johnny Dollar, where... I understand Alvarado's body was found under the tote board in the infield. Is uh, that where he was killed? We have no conclusive evidence either way. And what about that winning ticket on a long shot he had in his hand? It was a $10 ticket on Bella Maria, the winner of the fourth race yesterday. The price was $72 to win. Ah, not bad. Any idea what he was doing with the ticket? No, but it would hardly seem to have any bearing on the murder... Uh-huh. Of course, it is possible our suspicions are wrong concerning this Anthony Randolph. However, I still do not believe you will find the insurance to be the motive. You seem pretty sure of that, Captain. Why? Luis and Jose Alvarado were always very close, not only as partners in the racetrack and other business ventures, but personally as well. After all, they were brothers. Yeah, so were Cain and Abel. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.